This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. On today's episode, we get the inside scoop about everything that gets left on the cutting room floor as I speak with an editor and author who spent over three decades in Los Angeles editing comedy, dramas, documentaries, and features in every medium from film to digital. She is the author of Cut by Cut, Editing Your Film or Video. Film editing, great cuts every filmmaker and movie lover must know, and her most recent book, Editing for Directors, illuminating the technical, practical, and artistic aspects of the process in order to maximize a successful collaboration with an editor. Coming up is my chat with Hollywood editor, teacher, and author, Gail Chandler. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. It's really fun to get a new perspective on the industry. And as an editor, I guess the first thing I would ask you is most people think of us as an editor as a cutter, as if they're taking everything away. But I think of them as a storyteller at the kind of the highest order with a big toolkit. Would you just begin by describing to folks what the editor does on a project? Sure. Yeah. And I agree with your assessment. Americans, when film was physically cut, called cutters. But in Britain, because physical film was not only cut, but it was actually glued together, editors were actually known as joiners. Everybody knows that a film has to be written, or if it's a documentary, the outline at least, and idea of what you're going to ask the subjects has got to be created. And they know you have to take a camera and get shots. But the editing process is sort of like the guy in Wizard of Oz, the little person behind the screen. What happens in this closed-off room, which now can be somebody's garage or at their home? It doesn't have to necessarily be in a studio anymore, in a cutting room. And I would say the essence of what an editor does is they really are the last storyteller. They are the last rewrite. No matter what happened on the shoot, whether it took 10 horrible hours getting a bloody shot or a talent walked off or whatever crises happened, that the editor is removed from all that because they're in their room putting the story together for what the audience is going to see. The audience isn't going to know about all that, unless maybe there's a making of and, and they are curious, but that's another show in itself. Speaking to the idea of what they're doing is they're putting together a jigsaw puzzle. The jigsaw puzzle is a visual storytelling that they're using audio, they're using visual, and they're only working with what is brought to them for the most part. I mean, you can add a sound effect, but it is interesting that if they don't get the shot as an editor, you don't generally have that piece of the jigsaw puzzle to work with. Many people don't realize that you have to be very clever or crafty in putting those pieces together. Correct. I mean, this book is aimed at directors and filling in knowledge gaps, allaying fears of turning your baby over to a stranger, an editor, you may have just interviewed, you may have not met, you you know, have worked with before, and how are they going to put your vision together? And the first chapter is talking about why you want to shoot for editing, because that's where you're going to end up. You're writing yeah. for editing. The, the, the screenplay does not get seen. It's the, the footage, the sound and the 
pictures that get heard and seen. And the editor really is stitching them together. And the first chapter is really what what do you need to think about before and during the shoot? And one of the things that you really want to do is is cover yourself. And cover yourself means not thinking it's all going to play in the shot you've planned it for, in the master shot, which shows all of the action. Get close-ups because those can't be gotten again unless you have a reshoot budget and most films are not going to have that. I mean, sometimes you can blow up a shot and get that, but normally it's not from the right angle. The blow up is going to be out of focus. So you really want to get the shot so the editor has the best way of telling your story. The editor is your friend <laughs> yeah, and really wants to support and help you hammer out what isn't working and what is. And the book you're referencing is your new book, Editing for Directors. It's a guide for creative collaboration. And I think that word collaboration is so critical in the relationship because as you say, they're your friend, but a great deal of trust and respect has to happen between the director and the editor in order to walk away and have the first cut put together or be in a room together and say, let's try this. An editor has to have pretty good skills and patience because sometimes they want to see a different take or they want to change the tone of that scene. And so you're really collaborating on birthing a baby together. That's a great metaphor. I mean, you're really co-parenting this. And I mean, I say it's a marriage. It's sort of a short-term affair, really, because you go on to other projects or maybe, you know, like Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker, you continue to work together on picture after picture and project after project, small and large. So you really hopefully want to pick somebody that you trust. And both of you are really serving the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're two humans, so you want to have a, a good relationship. But your goal is, like you said, Pat, focusing on the baby and, and how it's going to be viewed by the rest of the world. And story really is the center of this. So what's interesting is that it is a visual story. The medium that you're working in is primarily a visual story. But the importance of preparation, you talked about coverage and covering your shots, which I can tell you there were times in my early directing career I didn't have the coverage. And once you make that mistake and you realize, oh, no, I'm stuck with this one long take of this person saying this line from this angle, you know, you understand how painful it is versus the idea of let's shoot a close-up of that Christmas ornament with the hand putting it up, and now we can go anywhere else in the room. Like we're, It's like an insurance policy to have these little places that you can turn the story on and the viewer never notices, but it gives everybody so much more, many more options to foreshorten a long scene or to cut away to the cat crossing in front of the window and go, hey, let's just cut all that stuff out and get to the point. But if you don't, you're either stuck with this master shot or you got to cut the whole thing and try to put a voiceover or something. And you can always tell as a viewer when there's a giant Band-Aid. It's unsightly if they don't have the coverage. Let me ask you the importance of keeping accurate notes and records for the editor who's generally not at the shoot. Tell me a little bit about what your expectations are or what makes it a dream for you when they give you the logs from the shoot. Yeah, the logs are critical. The script supervisor is going to give you a one-liner every day of everything that was shot. They're going to 
hopefully maintain continuity. But having the shot descriptions and having them properly labeled just saves so much time in editing. With the digital system, if you not only get them labeled correctly, but enter them into the system properly, you can find footage really quickly and show the director or show whoever wants to see it or find it yourself. And it just allows for the flow of the mind when you're editing. And then when you're re-editing and, and, you know, sometimes the director's in the room and sometimes the director leaves and they both, depending on the situation, they both can work or not work. You want to be able to find the footage quickly and just get back right into the show and not be taken away from it by having to search down stuff. Yeah. Or view take after take. If, if they're marking the takes on the set and they go, Hey, take the last take or take the second, to last take. It does. It at least gives you a starting place for the assembly. Sometimes you have to search back for something nuanced that they didn't know was there or some facial expression. But a lot of times if they do 26 takes of some big moment, you know, it's to, for the editor to have to chase back and look through that for the performance is cumbersome. If you're an editor on a show that it's not on a horrible time crunch, like reality shows are reality shows, they, they watch, they view the dailies in, I added, I interviewed some for the second edition of cut by cut and they fast forward through dailies. They simply don't have the time. They get such a mass of footage because digital made this possible. It wasn't like film where it was so expensive to print and, you know, didn't print certain takes. They've got everything, which is good. And, and, but the bad part is you've got tons and tons of footage and you've got a show that you've got to get out in reality TV. But normally as an editor, I would look through all those takes. I wouldn't, 26 would be excessive, but I would not take, if I was building for performance, I would take whatever worked. And it would typically a look from one take and a, the words from another take, because that's what works to build the story. And I was on the uh, sitcom, The New Leave It to Beaver, and they noticed when I came on because they, they noticed that I w- the actor, Tony Dow, came recently deceased, came to me and said, we can see you're looking at our takes, that we can see you're pulling from different ones, which I thought was really interesting. I mean, he started directing on the show, so he was... He was really much more focused on that and seeing the whole in the performance. That's a high compliment. And I know there that you have done dramas and documentaries and, but you have had nominations for cable ace awards for comedies. So let's just talk about the difference between cutting for comedy and drama, because I really value a good comedy editor, somebody who knows how to make the joke land or make the situation land. And it's generally a little bit faster cutting, it feels like. But maybe you can tell me. The yeah, difference. in sitcom, some sitcoms, which I didn't work on much. I, I worked on a Family Matters, which that was the case. Some sitcoms are shot in front of audiences. And so, you know, got four cameras working. So in a certain sense, it's a little easier with the matching of the angles, but the audience is really a, a fourth factor or a factor, I should say, in it, in that their laughter, you have to work with that. You can't just cut it out. So that is one way multiple camera comedies would be different from drama or a documentary, obviously. But single camera 
comedies, you know, like MASH was multiple cam. The point is, there are a lot of great shows that were multiple cam, but there are a lot of great shows that were single cam. And single cam is shot more like a drama. You have one camera taking Tony's close-up and another camera taking June's close-up. So you put it together. I really didn't pay attention to the audience. They added a laugh track to that show, which no one wanted, but the studio required. But I didn't cut for it, frankly. So they didn't have much room to get the laughs in. So I really cut comedy. I think editors do. I mean, they say comedy is is really sharpens your timing. And I think that's probably really true. But you're always cutting for what is the emotion? What is the story? And you get inside the characters. And so to a certain extent, it's it's the same. It's interesting that as a writer and director, when I'm looking over the shoulder editor, which I'm sure... <laughs> You can speak to that, how that must be the most infuriating thing to have somebody in the days of going in an edit bay where somebody's cutting and you're over their shoulder saying, no, I think I really, it's going to be funnier if we're on this person and not, not on that person. Because sometimes I want to see the voice that's saying the joke and sometimes I don't want to be. Again, this is from a comedy writer's perspective that, hey, you're showing me that moment too early. You're spoiling the joke. Don't. Don't show me that car wreck until after I say, wait, nothing happened here. Let's be sure. To me, that's that's sort of the visual storytelling of comedy. When you think of a weekend update, for example, on Saturday Night Live, there's sometimes that they're reading a joke and the punchline is in the picture that comes up afterwards. And other times you see the picture and you don't see the joke until they tell the story. So there are times that you want to be at, in one angle or another within the storytelling. But I, I do agree with you. It's story first. It's character first. It's appropriate reactions to things. And that allows you to give some timing between things. So if you, you, you actually have a lot of freedom when you're editing of adding time or taking time away. If somebody should be responding quicker, you can foreshorten that in an edit, which you can't do in a stage play. You're stuck with the dead air. A long time ago, I went with a friend to a play and he was a real film person. He said, where are the close-ups? He just couldn't. And I have written scripts and I have written plays and it was a real switch. They both show different things and they're just different. But I think one of the things you mentioned, Pat, that I find fascinating about editing is timing because there is the reality timing, the timing of the shot as the action actually happened as the actor walked across the set or as the person in the documentary showed how to play the drums or whatever the action is. But then there is the timing of the editing and editing can take a car wreck and elongate it with multiple cuts and slow-mo and all of that. Or it can shorten a whole century and a whole life to maybe show backstory into a few seconds. The timing in editing, it's the fabric of the film. It's like music. It's like rhythm. And there are rests. There are times when you elongate. I mean, after a heavy-duty action scene, like a war scene or somebody's died, the audience needs a break. They need a little peace. And you'll mm -hmm. see some comedy or a lighter scene will be thrown in or at least a rest. It's also interesting, depending on who the directors are you're working with, you have to establish a pace. So if you watch a certain kind of movie, in order for you to have those longer silent moments or those dramatic things, you can't be just galloping along the whole time and then go to this long silence 
I guess that's a rhythm between the director and the editor to discuss how much are we going to show the setup? How much are we going to establish the shot? What do we need to do to bring people into this moment and take them out of that moment? That's probably an important part of early dialogue, isn't it? About what tone are we setting here? I think you tend to talk more about story and character and the editor gets the first cut. And if you're good and lucky, 60% is probably going to make it to the screen and you're moving things around, taking things out. You're maybe tightening that timing, but you'll also maybe saying, oh, this needs to breathe a little more. I think it really is really from the gut and the heart of the editor. I don't think you cut so much with your head. You get you get right into it. You immerse yourself and you just sort of feel the rhythms of what the footage is saying to you. If you can take away your filters and really listen, it develops in the process. And do you typically put in placeholding music or things for yourself transitionally if you feel like something needs a turn in the scene or are you cutting pretty much just with the dialogue initially and telling the story that way before it gets sent off somewhere to be scored? You know, it depends on the project. I mean, you can cut to a piece of music, which is fun, or you can add the music later. And it's, it's always really interesting to see what the music does to a scene and how suddenly it picks it up and getting the right music. It it can take a very long time to get, get what's correct. I mean, one of the things I would say is one of the most meaningful things that a director I worked with said the same thing was editing family videos and just very emotional. And I did the PowerPoints when my parents died and just putting in the music, finding it took a long time. But then when you get the right piece, it just holds it all together. And so it is worth waiting for that right piece of music and you'll know when you get to it and you may, you will have to make some adjustments. You may have to lengthen some shots or tighten others or throw in a couple of extra shots just to make it work with the music. But I mean, you can slow down shots, you know, that's another, or speed them up to fit it, but it can really go either way with cutting to music or having the music lay down first. So yes, I've worked both ways. I really like, though, what you just mentioned about the family footage, because I have done that myself in a few memorial situations or some sort of celebration. And finding a piece of music sometimes is about knowing what they liked or knowing what the lyric is saying. And, you know, there was a song my dad loved. And I'm telling you that no picture could go wrong over that. And then sometimes the the emotion comes from that. I'm currently working on a a one-man show, and there is a moment where I talk about my dad before he passed about having dementia and Alzheimer's, and it's a beautiful picture of him bathed in sunlight, but the emotional moment of talking about him losing his memory, his public, private, and personal memories, so essentially they were being erased while he was still alive, we're fading the picture out the whole time, and I'm telling you that dramatic moment of feeling a man's memories go and not in his passing, but now you're dealing with this shell of a man who doesn't remember his grandkids, his wife. It's very, very hard. Like even to show it or talk about it to me is very emotional, but to be able to illustrate it to an audience at the moment where they go with you on that moment of loss, 
it's an editing trick. You know what I mean? It's the idea of the fade happening as I talk about the memories going. And it's a very magical, emotional moment for everybody. And I try myself not to get too weepy during the show because it's hard to look at my dad and watch him go away. But it is the best storytelling device in that moment. Well, kudos to you for doing that and getting that across to people that knew him and people that didn't. The other thing that is really powerful is, of course, after the show, there are many people who say that they had a parent struggling or a spouse struggling with the same thing and how much they needed that connection, which is the power of story. The filmmaking that you and storytelling that you do is something that people are vicariously or viscerally living through the emotions of the central character or the moments within the film. And I think it's our job to make people feel. Yeah. And you're, you're really directing the heart and the eye and the ear. One of the things that I really feel about film is that editing is really the language of film and it's spoken in close-ups, in special effects that we're all familiar with now. That language wasn't there a hundred years ago when films first came out. They were shot wide like a stage play and there were no pushing in. There was no, there was a little irising out because that's how they got from one shot to the other, but they had, they were also affected by the, the technology, which film always is. How long were the film loads? 10 minutes. How long can a digital, now the digital camera could probably run for, well, it's running off a battery, so you're certainly limited. But at any rate, what I was initially starting to say was, I think, and we talked about the timing, we talked about your dad and memories, and I think film is like memories and dreams, and the editing is how we get that into our head. I mean, sometimes I go, did this happen to me? Did I dream it? Did I see it on TV? Did I see it in a movie? And, you know, like with your dad, that that movie that you made, I'm, I bet you that's melding in your mind as part of your memories of him. Mm. And yes, it, it really happened and you, it was, a, you know, you shot him, so it was a real, but it was a film too. Yeah, here's the thing. We still don't know what's true. And what, what I guess the best illustration would be Kodachrome film because we think it's such beautiful, lush reds and the colors are amazing. Those are not the colors we were wearing. Those are not the colors of the fabric. They're the colors of the Kodachrome picture that become the memory that take us, to transport us there. So th- th- there is a lot of moments in time that you can't remember if it's the story you heard. You haven't been on the moon, even though you saw the moon landing. Yeah. So the more effective it is, of course, the more it cements itself in our mind as I was there. Yeah, I, I saw recently online a Russian, I think, young filmmaker had taken some shots of Paris and different places that were very early, probably cinema realities when the Lumiere brothers sent people out with cameras initially in film history all over the world because people didn't know what all that was about. They just heard about it, but now they could actually see it in films. And anyway, films like that, there were uh, included shots of Paris and he colorized it and he tinted it in a way that made it more real than the black and white. And we're used to thinking, oh, people sort of lived in black and white in the up until through the forties. <laughs> and we know they didn't, but that's how you think of it. And it was, it kind of 
put a different spin on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very romantic to use vintage colors and archival colors that maybe aren't even around today to make that feeling come true. It's a powerful medium and manipulating things is, is what the business of editing is. You are creating a brand new story and oftentimes you can save a, a performance. There are film actors who can't sustain a performance in a live stage play. They can't put it on for two hours and do the same thing. I'm not saying that, that there aren't some that can do everything, but I'm saying there are TV and film actors who are great at giving you a range of things and they get the performances, but it's the editor who assembles that Frankenstein monster into the beautiful matinee idol that, you know, maybe at the time in silent film, they would cut to a title card and then come back to another performance in order to get the emotional moment. I think the editor is to be thanked along the way for being a midwife for the story and for performances and the better they are at it, the less we know they did the work. Yeah. I think that's a big topic with editing. Should it be visible? Should it be invisible? And I think it's normally invisible because you have done the job, but I don't think that's the goal. I mean, sometimes in the, in your face is warranted by the situation. An editor that I really respect is Chris Dickens. And he got it. He started on Shaun of the Dead. He did Hot Fuzz. Mm. He did Slumdog Millionaire, Rocket Man. And if you just take a scene in one of those, and when I teach, I've showed Slumdog, but Pat, he just layers the footage visually. And you, I mean, and it's not, it, it's so it's modern filmmaking in that you don't even know what he's got in there, but there just feels like such texture in there. And then he does it with the sound too. And we haven't talked mm. much about sound, but. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how that enhances the visual and where, where those layers can be added. And Yeah. I mean, on a feature film, like any Lucasfilm or modern big blockbuster, there are easily 200, 300 tracks for every second in that film. I mean, you've got sound effects, you've got dialogue, you've got music. When you go into mix, you've got. 300 things going easily. You've got a lot. Sound can really add texture. I mean, what do we know about how the moon sounds? We made it up, you know? Um, what do we know about how the old West sound sounded? We've made it up. One of my favorite quotes is from a World War II veteran who was in a battle and he was shot and he didn't, think he was shot because it didn't sound like the movies and he didn't realize he'd been hit until he physically saw it. And so I would also say to directors at whatever stage you are and whatever size of show you're working on, sound is critical when you're shooting and people are more forgiving of bad visuals than sound. If they can't hear it, if they're straining, if you've mixed it so the music is overpowering the dialogue, unless that's a particular scene that dialogue isn't important, sound is critical. You want it crisp, you want it clean, you want to understand. Yeah. And just like you talked about visual coverage before, it's important to get that audio coverage when you're somewhere, get that natural sound of the location without any actors in it to have a sound effect isolated. If something is happening, it's like, let's get the sound of that trash can lid hitting the ground. 
I know, yes, we can fabricate it, but let's have an approximation of what's happening with the real weight of that item. And I talked to a Bao Tran, who's a action director, and he talked about a Kung Fu movie sound effects, everything from hitting cantaloupes to knocking pumpkins together to get that fleshy sound. And yeah, somebody's job is to layer all of that. But even sometimes to figure out where it belongs, you have to be covering all of that audio. Having a career as a sound designer or a sound editor can be really fascinating. I happen to live near Skywalker Sound. I've been there and I've talked to different sound editors and read about them over the years. And I mean, they just create a mood just with effects, not to mention what music does, which really, as George Lucas describes it, is the emotional bedrock for a film. So sound can be just incredibly important in, in how people perceive what a movie is. And that's what editors work with. It, you know, we paint with sound and picture. Well, it's funny you mentioned earlier about the idea of the studio making you put a laugh track on the comedy and to me, that's one of the more violating uh, sound offenses <laughs> there can be. And this comes just from a comedy person, which is, I want to earn that laugh. And I do understand, let's say the laugh gets clipped by something or a sound effect or something keeps us from hearing it. I don't mind a patch. I don't mind, you know, matching that little bit of a laugh or finding the fade out of the applause. But I hate the fabricated sitcom laugh track and there are guys that's their whole job you know there's a whole family uh, in hollywood and they have this great little machine that's like a gas pedal that they put their foot on and they go <laughs> and they're good at it but the thing is i always say do not put a laugh where there wasn't a laugh please don't do that to me if if the studio is going to make me do this let's just cover a little bit what's there to bridge things but I really like as little of it as possible. I feel like the audience has grown and understands, and we don't need to be spoon-fed the idea of one person laughing for a group. And I just feel like it's, it kind of stinks up the performances to have that constant notion that everybody's funny. To me, it's like you said, it's phony, it's added on, and people should be laughing out loud or within themselves I went one time and when they laughed the show, when the guy came in with his little machine and wheeled it to the stage and, and he didn't decide where to put the laughs. He was told, but he figured out sure. which ones to put in. So he had titters, he had short laughs, long laughs, <laughs> big laughs. I mean, I mean, I'm glad I saw it like you and I'm sure he knew he wasn't popular, but it was a requirement, unfortunately. Well, they're very popular with the studio and, and to be honest, they're good at what they do. I, I'm not faulting the, operator or the people who have the machine. I just think if you watch a, a show like The Office with Steve Carell, he's funny and that's a single camera shoot and you know there's not a studio audience there and what they're doing is funny enough. You don't hear that in the movie theater. We're sophisticated enough to laugh on our own and make each other laugh and let the performances dictate. But I don't know why at some point the networks got real insecure about we want it to seem funnier. I guess they were used to having an audience, and so the laugh maker was standing in for that. On Seinfeld, when I worked there, one of the things I used to have to tell the studio audience was, don't try to laugh in a weird way where you can identify yourself on the night of this show. 
somebody's going to have some weird kind of wacky laugh and they're going to go, that was me. You know, it's, you know, <laughs> Bob Johnson, Des Moines, Iowa, right? We're not going to keep it if you make a noise that's weird or something like that. But I do think that everyone has sort of an idea of how they are contributing to the success of a sitcom. Speak to me as a teacher. I'm a new student coming in and I'm interested in editing. What's the diplomacy of the editor with the rest of the crew? Because they do work quite independently. Oftentimes they don't meet the actors or they don't meet everyone. They're in relationship with to the director or the producer. But talk to me about the diplomacy of what an editor has to be in the big picture of this enterprise. Well, part of what the editor brings to the party, which is a subject of a chapter in this book for directors, part of it is that what an, an editor brings is the independent eye. I think we talked about this a little earlier. They're, they're not married to anything that happens on the stage or the location, but what they are married to is the story and the director's vision, or in the case of TV, more the producer's vision. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I would go on set, and some editors never go on set. Some editors like to go on set. Some editors are called on set. It varies, but most of the time we are not on set. People don't know who we are. You get to the rap party and it's sort of like, who are you? <laughs> you know? And, and right. you're like an off duty yeah. police officer. That's just wandering around and they think you're just a, narc. yeah. And it's cause it's funny. I met one of the actresses and I was like, I felt I knew her because I saw her every day on, on my screen, but I, of course I didn't know her, but I sort of knew her reaction or knew her character anyway. So that's what I would say is as far as how the editor fits in. There's a crazy amount of intimacy when you're watching people's performances. Like, you know, every nuance of everything they did on every day they worked. And it's kind of like, you've got a spy cam on them and they have no idea how much they're actually putting their career in your hands at that moment. Yeah. And that's your joy. You want to make it work as best as possible. You really do. And you want to help them. And mostly they help you because they give you good stuff. But when they don't, you're, you're going to try to make it work one way or the other. Yeah. Let's talk about the difference between, uh, let's say, young editors versus older editors that might have a different toolkit. And when somebody's choosing an editor to work with, what the advantages or differences are between uh, somebody who's an old school editor or been around a long time versus somebody maybe who's new has got it and doing, you know, digital work and music videos. Is there a big difference or, I mean, other than the amount of time they've been doing it? It's a good question. It's bandied around. A lot of young directors will get an older editor because of just trust and experience. An older editor has probably seen every situation in terms of story and project and personnel been caught between a producer and a director, been in some nasty situations and be a diplomat and, and also be very good at, at editing. They may not, I mean, the non-digital generation is kind of fading out at this point, but I certainly, I trained a lot of people on digital systems in the nineties and it was fascinating because some really top Hollywood editors just embraced it. Other people ran from it and said, film forever. It's never going to look as good. It's never going to sound as good. And I just kept saying, it's where it's it. It's where it's at. 
got to learn it. I mean, I saw mm-hmm. people lose work because they couldn't make the jump. So, and this is, is all part of a segue to a younger editor who's probably worked on music videos. It's probably no sound. It's probably very technically very proficient and fearless. They'll try anything. And, you know, good editor should give you advice, but yes, you should try things. And with digital systems, you can have a number of different versions. It's not like you have to rip all the splices out and put it back the way it was. Those days are over, thank God. Uh, but I think they both both bring something to the party, and it depends on your situation and how you feel about the person. You've looked at their work and what you want for your film. I mean, I have one director who said, different horses for different courses. And that's the way he looked at it. He sort of had his music video editor and his drama editor. And I thought it was kind of nuts because you can get boxed. You know, you're a young editor, you're Mm. a comedy editor. You can't do drama because you've only done comedy. You can't do comedy because, you know, and really as a director, you're not limiting yourself unless you want to be. And as an editor, you shouldn't be either. Well, I think young people have advantage that they do understand the language of film more now because they have a, studio in their phone that they are making content, whether it's small things for TikTok or YouTube or whatever, the intimidation and the distribution is immediate. If they want to work on something in their room and upload it or have a channel or build an audience, they are able to play with things that we couldn't play. Like when you had to splice film and you had to wait for it to come back from development. And also you were, I know in the sitcom business, it was critical to check the gate to see whether there was a hair in there that got in the way of the film. Like your whole day's shoot could be ruined. But in this case, just like pick up your phone and you can immediately be talking to the world. Literally by the end of the day, you can be distributing something that used to take weeks and months. When you say fearless, the intimidation factor is a bit gone. Everybody's communicating by camera these days. So it's not like anybody's concerned with what they look like or how it works. And sometimes they're uploading content that to me is substandard for what I would want to do quality wise. But sometimes in that organic delivery, there's some magic in a songwriter being on their bed, playing a song for the first time. So, you know, it offers all kinds of different, um, I guess, opportunities for people to express themselves through that visual medium. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel mixed because I don't want anybody to be discouraged. And, and I think making a film is is hard and it's work and it's learning on each picture. On the other hand, I will say that I find most music videos incredibly boring. They're just like background visuals and they have to be in a bar. People miss out on the character and the content and, mm. and touching an audience. And And I think you could do that with a music video, but most of them don't. The visuals don't help them. Just listening to the music would have been better, I think. Got to have stuff that moves people. So let's get back to that thing you said earlier, that you're not just cutting for the eyes and the ears. You're also cutting for the heart. And I think that that's where story is king. If you're going to give people an emotional ride or something to feel versus only to hear and see, I think that's the difference, whether it's a feature film or a commercial, it's a moment where your connection elevates your empathy 
or your humanity in some way, that's the difference between something that's worth watching and not worth watching. I would totally agree. I mean, it can be a long, boring, big feature or new TV series, or it can be really exciting. I mean, been watching Dickinson lately. It's a three season TV show on Emily Dickinson that is just incredibly creative and took liberties with her life, but I think got to a certain truth that involves today and great acting, great writing, great visuals, and it can be done. On occasion, I'm watching Chef's Table, which is a most, it's so lush, the showing the food and doing all of that, but oftentimes the story of the journey of that chef and what they went through and the highs and lows of success and the pressures, and they're telling real stories, uh, just as they did in the days the Olympics were broadcast for us all to see in real time. Oftentimes it was the packages of an athlete from Belarus you never heard of whose life was so fascinating that by the time they competed, that's all you wanted them to do was to win because you were suddenly following a character that had stakes and they had been in a barn somewhere eating only beans for two years and they had a family to feed and you're like, Oh, I want this guy to have the gold so bad. So that's the art of storytelling in its essence. I read a long time ago that something to the effect of athletics is really just what you were saying. It's about the story. I mean, you care that Gail Devers came back after she had a terrible accident. You care, you know, the, the ups and downs of the Williams and they're, you know, now they're, there, she retired with, you know, such a great farewell. And it is the stories, like you said, about the athletes that were in the bobsled. They made a whole movie about them. The ones from what Jamaica and um, no one right. thought they would win, but everybody just cheered them on for just even being there. You know, then there's the story of the IOC itself right now, which is quite a sobering story. Well, there are a lot of stories there other than the ones that are presented of the beauty on the ice. Is there something you're working on now that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, it's interesting. It's about filmmaking and preaching. Hmm. And it turns out I met a woman who is a preacher and a homiletics professor. And homiletics, I had, had no idea what that meant. It's the art of preaching. And It's a homily. They're talking about the homily within masses. So she teaches homiletics in Berkeley across the bay from me. And what she's found is her students are, know the screen language, as most of us do, because we love movies. And they love thinking in screen terms in their writing. And so I wanted to call it Fade in Jerusalem, BC. At any rate, it's, that's not, that title's not going to fly, but we're basically taking storytelling techniques, writing techniques, and applying them to sermons mm -hmm. and thinking about the audience, thinking about impact, killing your darlings, that editing phrase that says you take out the most wonderful shots because they don't move the story along or the most wonderful bits in your comedy that you absolutely love, but they don't go with the whole show. They, they take the audience out. So it's been very interesting for me to see how filmmaking can influence preaching. Well, again, it's storytelling. I know that I spoke to seminarians at one time about I, when they invited me to do it. I said, well, I'm a comedy writer. 
And somebody said, no, you need to tell them how to tell a better story. Because when they are talking to their congregation, they're trying to tell them a present day analogy to something that may make an impact on something that can change in their life the same way as a main character needs to grow on the other side of a film. And that's what they're doing every week when they go to, to, to speak in church is they're trying to tell a story that makes an emotional impact. So in those cases, it's a film without pictures other than what people have in their imagination. But now in many big super churches, you start to see that they are actually using the screen into storytelling and they're playing things that are short sketches that are being done by members of the congregation. So it is, it's a natural thing. And I wish you luck on this book because I think that there's probably a big audience of people who are going to be telling these very kinds of stories. Yeah. One of the things we're bringing in is point of view and whose point of view is left out of the Bible, which of course is a lot of women. And what would it be if it was told from Mary Magdalene's point of view? I mean, I do not happen to be religious at all. So that's been, it's been interesting from that standpoint. But yeah, and so this book is really not about how to jazz up your sermon with screens, although that right. could be done, but it's really about the actual design and writing of sermons. And, and, sh- and we really are going to say, break them into scenes and, and write them this way. And, and of course, it's not film because it's live delivery, but mm-hmm. some of the techniques, um, as we've talked about throughout this whole talk with plays and screenplays and editing and sound can be bridged in, in other disciplines. Yeah. Well, it's ultimately it makes it more dramatic and drama. Isn't always heavy drama is the idea of finding a theatrical way to tell a story as opposed to it being an actual happening. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see that book when it comes out. I appreciate you reminding us how important storytelling is and always serving the story is uh, your book is called editing for directors. And while you work independently and often aren't recognized at the rap party, we recognize you today. (laughs) And this is your story, which we're happy to share. I appreciate you sharing your insights and inspiration with our audience today, Gail. Thanks. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just two dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're called a creator.